Well, happy non-birthing parents day. <laughs> you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, that is the inclusive way of saying happy father's day. If you wanted to say happy mother's day, you say happy non-gestational parent. No, no, that's father's day. Mother's day is happy gestational parents day. And the logic behind it is, uh, is an attempt to use inclusive language, where you don't have mothers, you have birthing persons. You don't have fathers, you have non-birthing persons. And part of it is kind of a, an attempt to accommodate non-binary parents, where somebody is a biological male and now identifies as a female. It wouldn't be right to call them a father, per se. You would call them a non-birthing parent. Now, if that's confusing for you, uh, get used to it. At some point in time, people will ask you, what are your preferred personal pronouns? It's the new world that we're living in. I know some of you have already been touched by this as you have people you love who are part of uh, maybe this transgender movement, but all of us uh, we'll have to encounter it and deal with it. And it just goes to show you that there is a changing way in which the church uh, is regarded by the world. Christianity is looked upon very differently than it was three or four decades ago. In fact, I read a very interesting article that was published in February where it talked about uh, the three ways that Christianity has related to our world. Three epochs, three periods of time. Uh, before 1994, there was a positive view of Christianity. In a day and age where the great enemy of America was communism and atheistic socialism, having a God-fearing American, somebody who went to church, was viewed as a good thing. If a man quit his job to go into ministry, that was like quitting your job to join the army, right? That was a sacrificial service on his part. But with the Cold War ending, uh, the political utility of Christianity diminished, and then you had what's called a neutral view of Christianity, where it wasn't a bad thing, it wasn't a good thing. If you want to be a Christian, that's cool, good for you. Uh, there was no tacit disapproval of Christianity. Just don't force it on me. That was the overall uh, understanding. But in 2014, that began to change towards a negative view of Christianity. 2014 is selected because in 2015, the Obergefell decision uh, ruled that there is a constitutional right to gay marriage. And as a result, many of the precepts and the agenda of the gay revolution was codified. And those who opposed such progress, like Christians, would be seen as the enemy. And so in certain circles, especially elite culture-making circles, to say that you are a conservative Christian would be a personal and professional liability. Now, coupled with this changing uh, esteem of the church and biblical Christianity uh, is also a rise of what's called the nuns. In fact, a new poll came out from Gallup this past week that showed, I think, something like only 88% of Americans believe in God or we're at an all-time low as far as people who believe in God. That number has rapidly dropped, especially in rural America. And so you have people with no religious affiliation. Uh, they're agnostic, they're atheist, uh, they're basically a nun. They don't have any religious participation on Sunday morning. But that doesn't mean that they're not religious, what we're starting to see is this uh, religious devotion uh, to politics, to politics. A writer for The Atlantic made this observation, and The Atlantic is a left-leaning uh, national publication, so this is being vocalized in their own words. On the left, the woke take religious notions such as original sin, atonement, ritual, and excommunication, and repurpose them for secular ends. Adherents of wokeism see themselves as challenging the long-dominant narrative that emphasized the exceptionalism of our nation's founding. Whereas religion sees the promised land as being above in God's kingdom, the utopian left sees it as being ahead in the realization of a just society here on earth. 
after Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in September, droves of mourners gathered outside the Supreme Court, some kneeling, some holding candles, as though they were at the Western Wall. Right? There is a, an intensity to politics that I have never seen before. And the goal of this religion is to bring utopia here on earth through the coercive power of the government. And naturally, it would mean that you get rid of those who interfere with this progressive agenda, which would be conservative Christians. So what makes this religious war, I think, extra scary for Christians is if people have a religious zeal for this agenda that opposes you, then opposition to you, persecution of you, would be seen as an act of worship. And as we survey this land, landscape, there is increasing cultural dominance in the news media, in the Hollywood studios, in the American University, in the school districts, and in corporate America. And it is not a live and let live movement. There will be a clash when you're asked to call somebody who is clearly, and somebody you've known all your life as a female, when they ask you, refer to me as this new name with these new masculine pronouns, right? That's why this cultural war is not out there. It's a new one that touches our language, our relationships, and how we are to live our, our life. And the worst thing you can be is a bigot. Like, remember when profanity and the words you could not say were sexually related or scatological language? Now the new profanity is... Um, using a derogatory term about another race or another gender. Those are the forbidden words. So it is where we live. And this also explains how there is a, a rising sense of urgency within the church that now is not the time to be a namby-pamby Christian. We are in a culture war and we need to fight the Chicago way. You guys know what I mean by that? You guys ever seen The Untouchables, one of the great 80s movies? I'm not sure if I can recommend it because I haven't seen it in 20 years, but there's a legendary scene where Elliot Ness is played by Kevin Costner, and he's trying to take down Al Capone, and he seeks help from Jimmy Malone who is an Irish police officer played by Sean Connery. And they're in a church, and this is the dialogue. Jimmy Malone tells Elliot Ness, you want to know how to get Capone? They pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way, right? And so there can be this fantasy that, you know, I'm on Facebook or Twitter, I am ready. I have been briefed by the Daily Wire. I got my tumbler of leftist tears and I'm ready to go to war. Right? That is a desire, which is a good desire to try to conserve these institutions, the family, the church, the government, to own the libs. And in a day and age where you have activists on both sides, that is the, the, the tendency that you want to fight fire with fire. We're in a culture war, and we're going to fight this war the Chicago way. And this is why, as we are thinking about cultural engagement and cultural awareness, I think we need to look at John the Baptist as someone who, in Scripture, spoke the truth to power. Now, you guys know about John the Baptist? He was... Uh, started his ministry in a time when Israel, God's chosen people, were being governed by a faraway pagan emperor, the emperor of Rome. 
And he would have his puppet kings distributed throughout his empire. And these puppet kings were called upon Rome to make sure that the population is subdued and that they pay taxes to Rome. And so their precious resources were, were funding these, these semi-pagan kings and then funding this pagan emperor. They were living under constant oppression. And what an Israelite wanted more than anything in that time was for a Messiah to come to rescue them from these oppressors. They longed for change and entered John the Baptist. And Luke 3, 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was the most exciting thing to happen in Israel for centuries. Verse 3, 15, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. He was preparing them for something greater. He is preparing them for the reign of the Messiah. And the way that he prepared them was through a message of repentance. Remember that cordial greeting that he gave when he saw the crowds coming to him? You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see the crowds. He'd call them broods of vipers. You saw the tax collectors. Your brood of vipers. You saw the soldiers, your brood of vipers. The Sadducees and Pharisees, you are a brood of vipers. All of you are broods of vipers. You are sons of Satan, and you need to repent. Otherwise, when the Messiah comes back, you will be consigned to the fiery furnace. That was his message. And that was pervasive to everyone. The only one who did not get rebuked was Jesus who he could not say was the son of Satan. He's more like, what are you doing here? And so it makes sense as he's confronting all of these people expecting the Messiah that he would also confront the king. Turn with me to our text for today. Luke 3, 18 through 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. John preached truth to power. He was unafraid of the consequences. He had a message. He didn't care what it cost him. He went out and he said it. And we know that John is regarded by Jesus as the greatest man who ever lived. And so we see that what he is doing here, to a certain measure, is an example of what it means to speak truth to power. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to go through this passage, weaving in some of the other accounts to give us a fuller picture of the situation. Then we're going to reflect on lessons learned from John the Baptist about how to speak truth to power, okay? So we're going to look at the culprit, the crime, the confrontation, and the consequence. I took it the Thoris to come out with that, by the way. I had to get everything to start with C. So, the culprit, verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch had been reproved by him for Herodias his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. Now, there were a lot of Herods at that time. When John the Baptist was born, Herod the Great was the reigning monarch. Herod the Great was the cruel but effective king. He was the one who sent the death squads to try to murder baby Jesus. Do you remember that? And when he passed away, there was no clear successor, and so Rome divided up his kingdom to be ruled by his sons. Herod Antipas was one of his sons, and he acquired the region of Galilee. We'll see Herod Antipas later on at the trial of Jesus. Now, Herod Antipas, in this case, this Herod, had some Jewish credentials. Some. His mother was a Samaritan. Now, when you hear Samaritan, you think the good Samaritan. That is not what a Hebrew would think at the time. 
The Samaritans were kind of the leftovers of the northern kingdom of Israel who intermarried with their foreign oppressors and came up with a bastardized religion. It kind of mirrored the Hebrew scriptures. They worshipped one God. They would claim to honor the Pentateuch. But that was the extent of the truth and God's influence on Herod. He was not a righteous man, as we will see. But he was a pagan ruler propped up by Rome to control the population and to collect taxes. There was really nothing you can do to unsettle him. The only way you can get a different ruler is if Rome decided to recall him. They're under his thumb. Next, we move on to the crime. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things he had done. Okay, John is arrested because he confronted Herod on his relationship with Herodias, who, as you see, is his brother's wife. And not just his brother's wife, by the way. Herodias is also his niece. Yeah, that is right. Now, from what we know of history, Herod Antipas was married to the king of Aretas, uh, married his daughter. King Aretas presided over kind of a Syrian buffer state to the uh, northeast of Herod's region. This was a political marriage. It was one, it's a genuine marriage, but it was one for the benefit of the kingdom. When he was traveling to Rome around AD 29, he stayed at his brother's place as he was making his way out of Israel, and there he met Herodias, his brother's wife. They saw each other, they fell in love, they both agreed to divorce their spouses and then marry each other. Now, that by itself would constitute an adulterous marriage, right? But to make matters worse, it's a violation of Leviticus 18.16. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Leviticus 20.21. 20, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. It's one thing if your brother's dead. It's quite another thing when he's alive. It was forbidden in Scripture. Even the Samaritan view of Scripture. But in Herod's, Herod's mind, what he did with Herodias was his business. Who is John to tell me who to love? Love is love, after all. Then you have the confrontation. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, John the Baptist reproved him. He rebuked him. This was likely a public confrontation. He was speaking the truth to power because John's overall ministry was to prepare Israel for the Messiah to arrive. Do you remember that? Luke 3, 4 through 6, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and all the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. To prepare Israel for the Messiah, he had to level things out. He had to bring them to repentance. And it's very difficult to call out a nation to repentance if the king is unwilling to repent. Right? There was this understanding in Israel that a good king would lead the nation to righteousness. That's why, let's say, Josiah was such an outstanding king in ancient Israel, where a bad king like Ahab with lead them down the road of idolatry. And so you have a king who is living in open rebellion against the Lord in an adulterous, incestuous marriage. 
And as John is preaching, people could say, well, what about Herod? Are you going after him? Well, yes, he is. He's calling everyone to repent. Everyone needs to reckon with their sin. But Herod would have none of it. Herodias would have none of it. He heard the message. He knew about it. He would not repent. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6, where we see some additional insights into this confrontation. Mark 6, starting verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Right? That's the fuller confrontation. Then in verse 19, this is where it gets really interesting. We get to know Herodias a little bit. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, if we were to make a movie about Herodias, the New Testament Jezebel, she would be played by Angelina Jolie. <laughs> Who's going to play Herod? Joaquin Phoenix, right? Who else? <laughs> she was ruthless. She was cunning. She was alluring. And she wanted her man. And as long as this prophet is preaching against the legitimacy of this marriage, she did not have the security of knowing that Herod would stay with her. This prophet is trying to undo her relationship. There's incidentally nothing new under the sun. That often happens in an unequally yoked relationship, right? The unbeliever will oppose it with all their being because they understand the stakes. Herodias was opposing this with all her being, and she was pestering her husband. Well, her husband decided, well, I'm going to go ahead and arrest him. Put him in prison so he can't do that anymore. And yet, Herod had this odd intrigue about John the Baptist, right? He was also intrigued by Jesus a little bit later on. And, and Herod would have John the Baptist come and preach and what do you think John the Baptist was saying to him? You're in an immoral relationship. And so here's Herod. He's not used to anyone telling him no. He had a court full of yes men. And yet here is this shaggy man telling him that he's in sin and he is perplexed. Greatly perplexed. He is, oh. There was something inside of him where he agreed with John, but he couldn't break off that relationship. And so Herodias decides to get a little bit more security in her relationship, and she seizes her moment, and this is where we see the consequence, where he was not only put in prison, but we read in Mark 6, 21 through 29, but an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, right? This was the ultimate bachelor party, except for he wasn't a bachelor, right? There was drinking, feasting, famine, not famine. There was women. Where did famine come from? <laughs> Poker. There you go. That's what it is. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, 
I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. John fought the law and the law won, right? Lusty dance, careless promise, a cunning wife, a desire to keep her man. And John the Baptist lost his life. He would be a martyr just like the Messiah who he would point to. And yet, it should be acknowledged that he died a martyr because he spoke truth to power. He confronted a ruler on sin, and the ruler did not like it. His calling was to be a prophet, the last prophet of Israel. He spoke the truth that you need to repent. The Messiah is coming, and only those who are totally surrendered to him will reign with him. And so you look at John, and rightly, he should be honored and esteemed, and he is an example in many areas, especially in the area of speaking truth to power. So with my remaining time, what I want to do is kind of give you four lessons that we can learn from John about how to speak the truth to power. Principles to guide us based off of John. Okay, it's not exhaustive, but it fits in with the theme of John. The first principle is... Not everyone is called to speak the truth to power. Not everyone is called to speak to the truth of power. Truth to power. Now, in our activist culture, if you have a social media account, there's a tremendous pressure for you to comment on everything. Complicity, silence is complicity, right? Silence is violence. If you're not fighting for it, you're fighting against it, right? There's no middle ground. I remember after uh, George uh, Floyd died and that whole debacle, uh, there was a semi-prominent pastor who was silent for about three days, and there was this big uprising where, why aren't you saying something? And, and he had to explain that he was so broken up by this that he couldn't formulate a sentence or go on social media because he was trying to process these things out, right? He, the fact that he had to excuse himself for not giving a hot take shows that there is this expectation among many people that everyone has to comment on everything. And that's a lot of pressure. You see, you can be passionate about speaking the truth to power as John was, but there's also an understanding that not everyone is called for that kind of prophetic ministry. These are some reasons why. Number one, John had a unique calling. Mary was a great woman. But she wasn't necessarily confronting Herod on his sin. You see, it's possible to be a faithful Christian, a God-fearing person, and make disciples of all nations, build the church, lead your family, be salt and light, and obviously not approve of evil, but you don't need to be the mantle bearer of the person who is confronting rulers and other people on their sin. Does that make sense? It's not for everyone. Number two, kind of related to this, is John had a national platform. He was a big deal. Josephus, if you guys know about Josephus, the Jewish historian, he actually wrote about John the Baptist in his writings. I mean, he was a national sensation. Everything he said was reported to the entire country. He knew that Herod was listening in on the confrontation, and so it made sense for John to address that sin. You see, social media, I think, sometimes deludes us into thinking that we have way more influence than we actually do. Right? You, you, we no longer have publishers keeping our thoughts at bay. We can be self-published, using social media. And some people have 
have tremendous platforms. They are people that are esteemed, listened to. They can speak the truth of the power, and the truth is listening. If I were to critique Joe Biden with my Facebook account, he would never know about it, would he? Because my reach is limited. Uh, secondly, when you speak the truth of power and you're spending your time trying to confront these powerful people, uh, it'd be helpful for you to just understand who exactly can you influence. Like instead of trying to influence power on the national level, perhaps local level, school district level, you'd be a good steward of the platform that you have. But also realize that sometimes when you speak the truth to power, if you're going to make this your ministry, you can't do everything. It would be a shame for a pastor to neglect his flock because he is so devoted towards this prophetic ministry. Does that make sense? So part of it is you have to know what your calling is. If you're not called to be a prophet and speak the truth to power, that's okay. If you are called to do it, you need to make sure that you can maintain your other callings as well. And thirdly, John the Baptist had a focused message. He preached a baptism of repentance. His emphasis was on calling out sin. When he spoke to Herod, he didn't necessarily talk about trade policy. He didn't necessarily talk about the housing situation. He didn't necessarily talk about the high tax rates. When he had an audience with Herod, he was focused on one message. Like a lot of times, we might look at these celebrities, right? And celebrities are famous for being beautiful, leveraging their influence, pretending to be other people, or being really good at a game. And they think, because I'm really good at a sport, my opinion on international trade policy matters. Right? I mean, there is a sense where you got to stay in your lane. As a pastor, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. I know a lot about the Bible and too much about KU basketball. But beyond that, there is just a sense where I have opinions. But just because I'm skilled in one area doesn't mean that that passes on to another. There's a degree of competency that you should have before you speak out. Does that make sense? So is it your ministry? Do you have a calling? Do you have the platform? And do you have the competency to speak out? If that's the case with you, then by all means, steward it for God's glory. Secondly, if you're going to speak the truth to power, you need to recognize the place of power. The place of power. Uh, we live in a, a society that is highly, highly, highly cynical of all people with power. Agreed? Speaking the truth to power is often a way that is used to deconstruct systems of power. Those in power will inherently oppress other people, and they use their positions to do so. So that is the, the narrative of many people on the left. And even a, a specialized theology called liberation theology. You guys ever heard of liberation theology? Uh, it's the idea that the goal of the gospel is to liberate those people who are oppressed, usually economically oppressed or in political bondage. And so there's a desire to support movements and even revolutions that will overturn an unjust society. And so an extreme version of this would be support for defund the police, right? I'm not saying that's what everyone believes, but there is a, there is a, a subset that thinks that we need to take away from this oppressive institution and reinvest the money, right? You tear down this institution. You burn it down. On the right, there's been a rise of conspiracy theories or even, even discussion of civil war, right? Especially if they take away our guns. But either way, there is this suspicion for power and a willing to, to burn it down. Now, what's really fascinating is the approach that John the Baptist takes when he encounters the most oppressive people in Israel at that time. 
Look at Luke 3, 12 through 14. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Was there anyone more oppressive than a tax collector? Remember, they would take taxes and then some. They were the muscle to fleece the flock of Israel. And what does he tell them? Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Does he say don't collect? Does he say this is an immoral profession? He just says, do it right. And he said to the soldiers, what are we to do? And he said to this, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content in your wages. Still be a soldier, but do what you are told to do. When he confronts Herod, he confronts Herod on his immorality. He knew it wasn't his job to, to foment a revolution to overthrow Herod. The Messiah would do that when the Messiah came back. You see, there is an understanding that power, obviously it can be abused, but power is like money. Right? Money is not inherently evil, is it? Power is not inherently evil. Power, when used rightly, can bless our community. Paul says in Romans 13, 1 through 2, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Right, that'd be quite a statement to make in Israel at that time. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. I mean, imagine what life would be like if there was no government. It'd be like the book of Judges. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. You look at the failed state of Somalia, you look at certain parts of Mexico where the police and the government has lost control. Do you want to live there? See, the government restrains evil. And even in the American Revolution, the goal was not to just overthrow the government to have no government, but to replace the government with a more righteous government. Right? That was the goal. They saw that power was a good thing. And the thing is, if God disapproves of a government, he can do something about it. <laughs> do you remember that king, Aretas, whose daughter was married to Herod, and then Herod divorced? Well, that king and Herod got into a war, and Herod was decimated. He then, Herod then went to, to Rome to try to strengthen his position and his hold on the kingdom. And Herod was told, and the emperor was told by his brother that Herod's been hatching a conspiracy against you, emperor. And so he lost his kingdom and he was deported to France. And what's interesting is Josephus, the Jewish historian, speculated that the reason why all of this happened was because he murdered John the Baptist. You see, the truth is, all kings have their power assigned by God, and it doesn't matter how absolute their tyranny, if God wants to take them out, he absolutely will. And frankly, all kings will give up their throne and their rule when the king of kings returns. Luke 3.17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Remember what Jesus says to Pilate when he's on trial for his life and Pilate's getting frustrated with him, saying, why aren't you answering me? Don't you know who I am? John 19.11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Pilate, you're not in charge here. My father is in charge. Right? That's the truth. Thirdly, to speak truth to power, you prize piety. And ultimately, the message that we want to give is that Jesus is Lord, right? He is the true king of the universe. He is the true Messiah. And as we tell people that message, you want to live a life that is consistent with that message. But remember how Herod feared John. Do you know why he feared John? 
John was a righteous and holy man. He took no bribes. He was uncorruptible. He practiced what he preached. He lived with a prophetic sense of conviction. And when someone truly believes it and embraces that message, that is stunning to a, a watching world. He feared the Lord. The Messiah is coming. Everyone get ready for his reign. And he lived like he was expecting that reality. And that is why when someone speaks the truth to power about the lordship of Jesus and how we need to be under the law prescribed by our king and yet bucks him in his personal relations, it's a travesty. You look at Jerry Falwell Jr., son of a very famous and influential pastor. He was the first evangelical to publicly endorse and support Donald Trump in his primary run. He would be on our side when it comes to gay marriage. He would be on our side when it comes to abortion. He had tremendous influence in the Trump White House. He even spoke at a national convention. But in August of 2020, he published a suggestive Instagram photo with him and a young woman, both in a partial state of undress, as he's holding what clearly seems to be some alcohol, both of which are in violation of Liberty University student code. Later on, it came to light that his wife was enmeshed in an adultery scandal. And you know what? That was devastating for the body of Christ, isn't it? That someone who's speaking for these values doesn't embrace these values. I mean, if you're going to advocate for the cause of Christ in the public square... Be prepared to be attacked and scrutinized. And if you have something in your character that disqualifies you from it, then maybe you're not the one to take the mantle, right? And if you do make a mistake, perhaps you did something that was wrong, there's nothing wrong with just owning it and saying that is true. I am a sinner and I repent. Your relationship with the Lord is more important than your influence in society. And sometimes when we get caught up in a culture war, there can be a, a defensiveness where any criticism has to be rejected for the greater good of the cause. But ultimately, this is the Lord's battle. You need to be on his side, deal with your sin first, even if you lose your cultural influence. It's better to be in a right relationship with the Lord. Fourth, to speak the truth to power, proclaim the most powerful truth. If you had an audience with President Joe Biden and you could speak one message, what would it be? What would it be? Would you talk about religious freedom? Would you talk about the plight of the unborn? What would you tell him? Well, when John spoke to Herod, what was the content of his message? You need to repent. When Paul stood before King Agrippa to defend himself, he shared the gospel so much so that in Acts 26, 28, King Agrippa says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He spoke the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died on the cross, the death you deserve to die. And then God raised him from the dead so that you can be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life if you repent and follow him forever. That is the most powerful message in the universe. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't convey other messages. I have my very first yard sign. I've never had a yard sign before. I have to value them both in my front yard. Now, a day after I put up my yard sign, my neighbor put up his yard sign that said, defend your rights. So, if I'm going to persuade my neighbor, there's a variety of ways I can do so. I can steal his yard sign. <laughs> I can give him brochures about 
abortion and the evils of abortion. Or I can share the gospel with him. Now, I wasn't always pro-life. I, I was a liberal before I was a Christian. Just by God's grace, I wasn't old enough to vote <laughs> in 1992. But I would say I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I can't say that for someone else. That was my, my mentality. And then I became a Christian, and it took me about a year to get some of those concepts straightened out. Understanding that truth is truth, understanding the value of the unborn, understanding the consistency of the argument, but I did change. But I'm not convinced I would have changed apart from my embrace of the gospel. Now, is there a place for pointing out sin? There absolutely is. I think we do our public a favor by picking at their consciences and letting them know that what's wrong is still wrong. But you have to be careful that as you do that, it does not detract away from the soul-transforming truth of the gospel. Now, you guys know the name Fred Phelps, a national embarrassment to the evangelical church and to Kansas. But did you know that Fred Phelps is what's called a hyper-Calvinist? He believes in predestination, and he believes that Basically, if God is going to save someone, he's going to do it. You don't need to persuade. You don't need to share the gospel with them. They'll figure it out. But, get this. He believes, if you were to hear him actually share the gospel, you would agree with him. Fred Phelps says he believes the gospel. Whether or not he embraced it, that's between him and his Lord, our Lord, right? I still can't believe it. I'm skeptical because his message has been so condemnatory and hopeless that you would never know what he really believed, right? Our primary message that should come out of our mouths is the truth of the gospel. And granted, there is a place for calling people to repent of their sins. That's why people are steeped in living a certain way. There has to be a reckoning where they have to turn away from that, but that's in the primary gospel context, right? And that's ultimately the message that is going to change our society, and that is the most powerful weapon that we have. When you speak the truth to power, you need to make sure that other issues don't obscure the truth. So if you were to speak to Joe Biden, what would you say? Well, Billy Graham is a rare pastor who had probably the greatest um, platform of any member of the clergy in American history. He met with every president from Truman to Trump, which is remarkable. Now, he would admit that he made many mistakes. By all means, don't take this as a complete uh, endorsement of his ministry. I, I thank God that he preached a gospel and that he lived a life of integrity. But by all accounts, he seems to have had a faithful witness. Now, Billy Graham built a relationship with George H.W. Bush when he was the vice president of the Reagan administration. And when Bush was looking and eyeballing a run in 1988 for, for president, he realized that he had to understand the evangelical vote and the evangelical mindset. And as an Episcopalian, he was removed from that. And so he asked Billy Graham to accompany his family and join his family as they would vacation and congregate in Kennebunkport, Maine. Often after they would eat dinner, uh, the family would ask Billy Graham a number of questions about the Bible. And one night, the topic of being born again came up. And one member of the Bush family was, was extremely intrigued by what Graham was saying. And the next day, Billy Graham went on a walk on the beach with George W. Bush and had a conversation with him that Bush says changed and transformed his life. I mean, if 
you could speak one truth to power. I mean, what would you say? This next week, I pray that we see the end of Roe versus Wade, right? I love nothing more than to see the unborn be protected. But what you're also going to see is Gentiles grieving like they have no hope. Because their hope is in this utopia that they're trying to make here on earth, which will never come to pass, by the way. Yet we live like Jesus is Lord, and there is another world, and we will win. In the meantime, we're trying to get this world prepared for the world to come. And by all means, love our neighbor, bring about justice. But let's never forget that if we have an opportunity to speak the truth to power, the most powerful message that we can give is that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you. And while we live in a world that is hostile towards Christianity, we worship a God who isn't. And that's what ultimately matters. Lord, I pray that we will have a confidence that if you are for us, who can be against us? And Lord, I pray that you'll give us opportunities to speak the truth Uh, to a world that doesn't want to hear it. Well, at least that's what Satan wants us to think. We know that there's many people who are open, who need the hope, who will be burned by a religion that condemns but doesn't save. So Lord, help our church to advocate for, for justice and righteousness for the unborn and more. But more than that, help us to advocate for the gospel. And I pray for those within our midst who do have that platform to call out regional, statewide, national, or even international injustice. Help them to do so with the greater hope that you are the Lord and that you might use their ministry to indict this world so they might turn to you as Lord and Savior. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.